In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So out of the world, where as far as the media will tell us at least, the church is declining and the church is dying. Have a look at this picture on the screen from the 1890s from London. It's, um, as you can see in the distance there to the far left, you've got St Paul's Cathedral. So that was from 120 or so years ago, London skyline. And have a look from the same place today. It's quite a different place, isn't it? It seems to me that the London skyline, in a sense, is a, or at least captures in microcosm what many people think of as faith today. We are on the decline. We are irrelevant. No longer are churches particularly visible. You can just about see St. Paul's behind the cranes, but that's it. Rather, they are large, empty shells. They are sold for flats, and they are overshadowed by tower blocks. No longer is what we say credible, but rather it's an archaic message from yesteryear with, with little to be heard from us on present-day issues. In many people's eyes the church is at the beginning or halfway through a long and slow and painful decline except of course except of course when you stop listening to the media and when you start looking at the numbers because when you do that things are quite different you don't just count perhaps churches that are closing down and there are some But if you begin to count as well the new ones arriving, the church is being planted, the church is being revitalised, and it's a different picture. Now some of the older denominations especially are seeing a reduction in numbers. Churches are closing, but lots of others are growing and thriving and flourishing. Lives are being transformed, people are being made alive, good is being done in communities, people are being reached. So I guess the question is, what's the secret? What is the secret between these churches that are, that are growing and thriving and doing well and others that are doing lesser? And there's not a sort of, there's not a one answer. Not something that we can just um, chuck in like a machine and sort of out it comes and here's a new church or here's something that flourishes. But there must be that kind of a question that we're asking. What is it that means some churches grow and flourish and that others decline and are overshadowed by tower blocks I think it's a similar question as we come to the start of the book of Acts we'll be there as I say for the next few months we'll slowly work our way through I will start off with some of the preaching and then other people will slot in Um, but 
Just days before the beginning of Acts, the disciples were cowering. The disciples were scared. The one that they had given it all up for. The one that they had followed. The one who had said he would come and put a broken world back together ended up hanging there on a cross. And they had scattered faster than a kitten in a room full of rottweilers. But then we reach Acts, and things are very different. What was it that's transformed them? What's changed the lives of these early Christians? I think if you're an atheist, or if you're an agnostic, or if you would call yourself a Christian, or you just don't know, then we each need to come up with an answer to that question. What was it that transformed these early Christians? Something did it. They were, they were scat, scattered, they were cowering, they didn't know what was going on, and then just in a few pages' time, they are preaching to thousands. They're fearless, they are bold. Maybe it was a mass hallucination. Maybe they, they deliberately banked it all on a lie, they concocted this this fabricated story to save face. It doesn't seem that's what's going on. As you read through Acts, it seems to be more than that. So as we look at the first five verses of chapter one, we will see two utterly foundational truths that we must grasp onto and hold onto and build upon for the year ahead. So, first one. Why do some churches grow and others not? Why were the disciples completely transformed with lives that were turned around? Well, the first truth to grasp onto is this. Know that Jesus really rose again. Luke wants us to see that Jesus literally rose from the dead. And so nothing is the same. Let me look at, let me read verses 1 to 3 again for you. Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke doesn't just think that these truths about Jesus are a nice story. A nice story that makes some people feel better. That means they can, they can get through a difficult life. It's often the corner we can find ourselves in, isn't it? People say, well, the Christian faith is lovely. It's a nice and valid way of looking at the world. Jesus, he was a great teacher, a super example, worthy of respect. And I'm sure he can help people today. And of course he's still alive. He's alive in the teaching of his people. He's alive in the church that he founded. But let's not push it further than that. This literal resurrection thing, well, people don't rise from the dead, do they? It's as if it's, it's our poem, they say. You Christians, you have your poem, and that helps you make sense of your world. And that's good. But don't impose that on me, thank you. That's just truth for you. But Luke, Luke, this guy who wrote Acts, he wrote the Gospel of the same name as well, won't let us have that. He says this is historical fact. You're probably aware of how his Gospel account begins. Let me just read to you um, the very beginning of Luke chapter 1. The first half of his writings, he says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So what did Luke do, the author of the Gospel and the author of Acts? He did research. He did careful investigation, verse 3. He spoke to eyewitnesses. He spoke to servants of the word. Why did he do it? To give an orderly account, verse 4, so that this guy, Theophilus, may know the certainty of the things he's been taught. And who was this Theophilus? Well, it literally means friend of God. He may have been an individual, may have been a Roman convert, particularly, people think. But in writing to him this orderly account, so others would have read it in the years to come, and the decades, and the centuries, and the millennia. People like us. So that we may know the certainty of the things we've been taught. Most likely Luke was a doctor, medical doctor. Uh, a man of learning and education. Somebody whom we can trust. It's not meant to be a comfort blanket message. Something that we cling on to when life is scary but we know it's not really going to help us. It's not really true. When life is just a little bit too dark, we kid ourselves with this fairy tale. That's not what Luke thinks at all. These are orderly facts and truths. They are recorded because when this kind of thing happens, you can't not record them. They turn history upside down. That might in itself be a massive implications for you. Maybe you've never really thought through the reality of Jesus or the fact of the resurrection. I'd love to encourage you to think through perhaps joining a Christianity Explored course. Perhaps in October or November we've got one going on. A chance to look at some of the source documents to ask the questions and doubts that you might have. But as I encourage you to do that, I want to give you a warning. Because if you look back, history is littered with people who sought to disprove it who are sceptics, and yet they, they're convinced themselves. Let me just give you three such examples which I found striking this week in researching this. There was a, a guy from Harvard Law School called Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He, he wrote volumes of the laws of legal evidence. He mocked Christians in law classes. And then Christian students challenged him to take his own methods and to apply them to the truth of the resurrection. And he was up for a fight, so he did it. But he concluded the evidence was so convincing that he became a believer. He was transformed. He later wrote, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best established facts of history. Another example, Dr. Benjamin Gilbert West and Lord Littleton from Cambridge. uh, So fed up with the Christian faith that they wanted to destroy it. So they take this leave of absence to study the resurrection. They wanted to write a book on on that and and the conversion of Saul to refute it, to say it wasn't true. As a result of their study, they became two ardent believers. And they wrote, reject not until you've examined the evidence. Final one, Dr. Frank Morrison, a lawyer, engineer, brought up in a rationalistic background. He liked Jesus, but he thought the resurrection was a myth. So again, he does the research. He wanted to refute it. In the process of writing, like many others, commit his life to Christ. He wrote a book 
called Who Moved the Stone? Is it just a fairy story? Not just something that we kind of cling on to in the vain hope that it's true and will get us through life. Luke says, I've written this down because you need to know it. So I take it as a church, as we think through our, our year ahead, as we perhaps rededicate ourselves to our vision, we need to be convinced afresh. We need to build upon the truths of the resurrection. That's what our faith hinges upon. If we, if we get rid of that, then like a house of cards, it all falls down. Without the resurrection, we can't trust Jesus. Without the resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the resurrection, there's no relationship with God. Without the resurrection, finally, there's no point. It matters. So first one, then, know that Jesus really rose again. But it's striking because there's this amazing news. But verse 4, verse 4, the story is not yet finished. So Jesus has risen. There's convincing proofs. There's food being eaten. And yet it's dot, dot, dot. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So first point, know that Jesus really rose again. Second one, know that Jesus will really empower you. He equips us to do what he calls us to do. That is such an encouragement. He equips us. To do his work. This is a story to be continued. This is a dot 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 story. It's actually implied in the first verse of Acts. So in my former book Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. And to teach. Which implies that the gospel of Luke. Is all about the start. But Acts is all about what he continues to do. And to teach. So what did Jesus do when he was resurrected and ascended and sat at the Father's right hand? He continued to work through his people, empowered by his Spirit. Verse 4. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water... But in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So why were these disciples so completely and utterly transformed? Why was their lives turned upside down, the things that they said, the things that they did? I take it it's not ultimately because they saw the risen Jesus. Sometimes we can say that. I'm not sure that's quite right. I think it's actually because God's Holy Spirit was living in them. And transforming how they lived equipping them to live for him. And verse 5, just as Luke's readers will know John the Baptist had baptised people in the Jordan, immersing, cleansing them, turning them around, away from self, back to God. So there was a new era coming, but it wasn't John doing the baptism. God himself was going to baptise his people. And it wasn't water that would cleanse people for a time on the outside, it was the Holy Spirit who would cleanse people forever on the inside. And he would equip them too to do the works of Jesus, to continue the work of Jesus. Which is why the church is not dead. 
Which is why 2,000 years later it is still growing and it's still going strong. Just turn over to chapter 2 of Acts and you will see something of Peter, how he's been transformed and how this Holy Spirit comes upon his people. Chapter 2 and verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the Holy, promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. So look at verse 32 and 33. See the progress. Jesus raised from the dead to life. And many people saw that, witnesses of that. And so exalted to the right hand of the Father, he received the promised Holy Spirit and then has poured it out upon his people. And at the time, as we'll see in weeks to come, there was clear and blatant evidence of that. But notice a couple of aspects with me as we, as we consider this pouring out of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 1 again. They had to wait, verse 4, wait for the gift my Father has promised. That is, they couldn't accomplish what Jesus wanted them to do without him equipping them to do the task. He equips us to do what he calls us to do. We're useless to the kingdom of God unless he sends his spirit. Our commission as believers is is to work in his kingdom, to spread his message. But this is no ordinary work. This is God's work. This is eternal work. And we need equipping from his Holy Spirit. Which means as we look ahead to the next 12 months or so and we look forward with uncertainty and trepidation and not quite sure what's going to happen, then we can be certain that we need his equipping. We need him. We need his Holy Spirit to work in us, to work through us, to enable us to do the things he calls us to do. To just try and crash on on our own, we will fall flat on our faces. But we don't need to do that because he enables us. Now, if you're a Christian here this evening, as I read the New Testament, I see that you have the Holy Spirit. You have his Holy Spirit. It goes hand in hand with coming to Christ, with being born again. And yet, as you read the Bible, it seems to me we can grieve and we can quench and we can thwart the work of his Spirit in our lives. Sin, hardness of heart, disunity, grumbling, It seems to me can all quench his work in us, his work of transformation, but his work of enabling too. So don't grieve him, but be equipped by him. So first one, they had to wait. They needed God to help them do what he called them to do. The second one was that this empowering was a gift from God. A gift from God. Verse 4. This is not and cannot be self-generated. We can't earn it or deserve it. They could pray. They could ask. 
but they were reliant upon him. So I take it we too are dependent on God to give us his spirit. And to do what he calls us to do this year, then we need his equipping. We need a daily enabling, a daily filling to use us in our weakness as he sees fit. So, to press on this year, we need to know that the story continues. That this is a dot, dot, dot story. We need to know that Jesus really rose again. To be convinced of that. And not just think it's some kind of fairy story comfort blanket that people make up to get them through a dark world. But we need to know too that Jesus really will empower us. That it's okay to be weak. That's the way it's meant to be. Because it's weak people that he uses.